and welcome to the Connected Generation. My name is Nikhe Anani and I'm Leo Bruce. On the Connected Generation, we explore all things legacy wealth and legacy businesses, businesses and wealth that would outlive their founders and have sustained impact not only over time, but also over space, making a positive impact. And we explore these conversations with authenticity, vulnerability, and curiosity. This week, oh my goodness, I was joined by Kara Macklin and my word, I remember the first time we met virtually and it just felt like she was my sister, like on the other side of the globe. And we had such strong commonalities in our life experiences and our life transitions. And she's just been such an asset to me. Um, and just validated a lot of my experiences, right? And so she's a second-gen entrepreneur of Irish descent, and she grew up in her family business. And I found this so fascinating. Kara said that at the age of eight, she dreamt of owning Tammy Girl. So for those of you that are stateside or live in other parts of the world that are not in the UK, Tammy Girl is like Forever 21. When I was growing up, it was like a chain of stores for young girls. Every Saturday, we'd go down to Tammy Girl to go buy a necklace or, you know, some top that we'd saved up. And her dream at the age of eight was to own the store, not to work in it, to own this store. And she opened her first business at 15. After she also spent 15 years as a director working in her family business that was founded by her parents, which was a really successful healthcare and hospitality group. Um, and she, she, she did a lot. She really, um, disrupted the healthcare industry, bringing on board new ideas, new concepts, and then left the family business right, walked away from all of that to start off her own journey in helping other business owners in scaling eight-figure businesses and helping them to disrupt their industries and make a positive impact. I just so love this conversation. It was, oh my word, it was just so amazing. And Kara is just a genius. She really is. <laughs> so I'd encourage you to tune in and share the love. Hi, Kara. It's awesome to have you today on The Connected Generation. Welcome. Thank you so much, Renike, for having me. Yes, this should be good fun. Um, you help next-gen entrepreneurs globally to reimagine boundaries, diversify and scale their businesses, and make a positive impact. But before we unpack that, can you tell us more about you and how you got to where you are? So my uh, journey in business, when people ask me when did it start, and you and I have had this conversation off, you know, off the podcast, and, and like yourself, kind of five years old around the kitchen table. Um, I think you know I always believed that every family grew up talking about VAT and the tax man and staffing issues and going to the bank to get cash. Um, turned out they didn't. So yes, my parents set up the business, so I grew up watching that. Um, in Northern Ireland, and did the well actually at school. Um, two of the funny stories that people enjoy hearing. One was my first business was at eight years old, which I lost money on making jewelry. Um, figured out friends aren't the best people to be customers because they tell you everything's great. Um, and then my next business, which did make money, my brother and I at at fourteen and fifteen decided to run uh, buses or coaches to local nightclubs for our school friends because we lived in the countryside and, and it was the only way to get out. Mm. Um, so that was very successful and we had a nice healthy income from that as teenagers. Um, and someone joked with me and reminded me recently that when I was at school, my principal asked me what did I want to do when I grew up. And, and I think you and I have talked about this as well. Most people in my school, like girls, said, oh, I want to be a nurse or I want to be a lawyer, I want to be a teacher. And we said, oh, I want to run Tammy Girl. Like, I'm going to own it. And that was... a. Uh, wow. How old were you? Probably eight or nine at that stage. Um, and that was a high street teenage fashion chain in the UK. And I like, I mean, like yeah. A multi-billion pound high street teenage fashion brand. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. And I mean, the typical traits of entrepreneurs, we see the world through rose-tinted glasses. And I certainly did. And I'd seen no issue with, like, it was a great shop. I loved it. And why would I not own it and run it? Um, it's no longer around. So I... I did the usual. I went to university, did business studies. I was in London for a while, um, working in Marks and Spencers in their food trend studio, um, which is the innovation side of their business, and then came back into the family business officially at 24. Amazing. And tell us more about your, at the age of 24, when you entered the business, what challenges did you face and how how did you find that journey? Yes, I think the hardest challenges are, in some ways, you're a lot more advanced at 24 than other people who haven't grown up in a family business. Because if someone said to me, you know, your education has been for the last 20 years in business, mm. in some areas, but in other areas, the, the biggest challenge in any business, and it certainly is when you're that age, is the psychological side and the people side, mm. the whole culture piece, how you manage people, get the best out of them. Like that is a, it's a very tricky thing to do no matter what age you are. But I think at that age, um, hugely challenged and I took over the oldest business in the group and um, so my father ran it it was very well established very set in its ways you know and drop in this very innovative very different thinking 24 year old who wanted to change the world overnight mm. you know some of the staff in it had been there from I was a child and um, so they knew me you know running around as a child so that whole dynamic I had no concept of the impact that would have I thought well I'm here to do a job and you're here to do a job so let's get on with this um that didn't always materialize that way um and there's I think there's always a challenge no matter what age you are of in inverted commas you're only here because of your second name yeah. um and I certainly I think I've said this to you like I've met a lot of next gen people in business and my experience and I'm not saying this about me personally but but my experiences actually they work far harder yeah. And they have to achieve a lot more success, which is probably right um, to prove themselves. Um, so they were probably two of the biggest challenges. Yeah, no, can we unpack that a little bit more? Like, so you were 24 and you were leading the oldest business in the group and also leading um, folks that had known you from when you were really young, right? Um, and presumably an older team. How was that? Yeah, so I just want to touch on that. So you were 24 leading the oldest business in the group, as well as navigating leading a team of staff that have known you since you were a little girl. Can you tell us more about how you handled both of those challenges? Um, in some ways, probably not very well, Nikki, when I look back. Um you know, to give an example, I believe that um, you went to meetings, you agreed things, things got done, you came back and, you you know, you updated everyone on what was happening. That clearly isn't the way. Um, I would be the opposite of a dictator type leader in terms of telling people what to do. Mm. But I probably believed in the early days when I seen things that needed fixed and changed that no one else could see. It was my role to just say to people, look, this is what we need to do or um you know can we get on with this um I realized then as I went along that journey the most important thing is to ask the right questions to get people to come along that journey with you so that was a huge learning curve um but I mean I suppose what I did do successfully I I probably mean well I people have told me I would have a very good intuition and good people skills that I've had from a child so you know that business is a caring business very people orientated. I had 120 staff. Um, so I had very good relationships with the staff. I was going in, you know, to a great team of people. Um, so that part of it was, you know, continued very successfully. It was a strong business. You know, we maintained the strength of the business, you know, from a customer perspective, you know, I was able to very quickly get to know them and, and continue the good reputation that we had. Um, and, you know, like anything, you just work very hard you put in the hours at the time and and you learn as much as you can I spent a lot of time in all areas of the business early on to try and learn from everyone um so that was probably the key things hmm. and can you touch on the psychological side you you mentioned that as one of the challenges can you elaborate yes yeah, so I don't I mean at the time you don't realize it but 
you know, I remember later on a leader saying to me, the work is not hard. It's the thinking about it outside of work that trains, you know, that emotional piece around, have I done the right thing? God, how do you do this? Um, Mm -hmm. So the further, you know, a lot of people, and I'm not taking away from how hard everyone's job is in a business, but the more senior people go in an organization, if you've never been there before, a lot of the staff on the ground don't understand the emotional and psychological stress and challenges that come with that. Um, there's a lot of things that as a leader, it's your job. And, and I you know, very much would stand in front of anyone and take a bullet for my team. Mm-hmm. Um, but to do that, there's a lot of things that you're absorbing that they don't even know about. So you're protecting them from um, so that piece. And then just I think just the dynamics of the culture and the business. You know, it was to, to drop a 24 year old in to that environment. Um, you know, I was managing a nurse manager who was three times my age, some of the staff. So they were just much more ahead of me in terms of experience of managing staff of um, so that that would have been a hard piece as well in terms of trying to learn and figure that out in a, you know, it was a business that was open 24 seven. So it wasn't as if we just had a few weeks to go and do a training course here or learn a bit more about here. And we did do a huge amount of training and development and, and coaching and mentoring and all of us and our leaders, but it was constant. You know, there was always staffing issues. There was always customers. There was always, because the business, it's a nursing home, it's open 24 seven. So that was probably the the challenge. Hmm. Um, I love the piece, particularly on what you said about, the more senior you grow up in an organization, there are things you're not, you're kind of covering the ones mm. that are junior from and they're not necessarily privy to. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Those burdens that you carry as yes. a leader? That- yeah, I mean, to give you some examples, like when the recession hits, you know, many, many leaders carried a lot of stress and challenges to protect their teams because, you know, one of the most important things, and I, I listened to a podcast today, actually, which you're on one of them, um, but the guy was talking about, the environment when it was a family business was a very safe space for staff and they thrived in that. Mm. You know, safety is one of the most important thing. You know, talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's a basic. So when staff don't have that, um, so you're doing any anything you can to protect staff from everything. Um, so that's probably the one thing. Some of the other things are just things you've been told or things that aren't, it's not that you ever hide anything from your team, but there's just things that they just don't need to know in terms of they would worry or, you know, you're better to try and sort it out and then go and say to them, look, this is where we were at and this is where we're at now. And we sorted it out. You know, I always say, well, I can worry. There's no point in a hundred of us worrying. Um, it might as well just be me until it needs to come to the point that more people need to worry. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably, and of course you're worrying about, you know, COVID has shown. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I remember saying years ago, like we are going into an era where leaders will never, ever have dealt with the complexities in business that are coming at them. Now, I would love to tell you I predicted COVID. I certainly didn't, but I could start to see like one of our businesses in the family is hospitality. So that's very volatile, changes all the time. I could see staff and things. I could just see different things that were so complex um, and so many of them. Um, so leaders definitely, you know, there's that psychology of the future. Where's it going? What's going to happen next? Um, that you're always thinking about as well. For sure. And dealing with that at age 24, when your peers, their worries are very different. Yeah no, my, very yeah, no, my friends were worrying about um, which city they were going to live in next for their job or none of them managed staff, you know, for at least probably 10 years after that. Um, so, you know, they wouldn't have had any of the staffing issues or the challenges of that. Um, and, you know, even things like I would have been accountable to the regulator in the healthcare hmm. in Northern Ireland. So if something went wrong in care, I'm sitting in front of a regulator or ultimately if something drastically had ever went wrong, thankfully it didn't. I'm in court defending, sorry, one of the people, obviously the medical staff will be too there, but like at that age, I would have been in court having to explain why something went wrong or, you know, so you, there, it's a big responsibility. Pro- I probably didn't realize it at the time, mm. thankfully. Um, but when I look back now, yeah, it was, a, it was a huge, I mean, I had 120 staff and 80 elderly people wow. in the care and all their families, you know, so it was not a small operation. So you grew up very quickly. Like, mm. 
with the responsibility. And you were very humble with describing your entry into the business at the age of 24, taking over the largest um, unit in the family business. But you championed a lot of change. You brought a lot of, you made a lot of positive impact. Can you speak more about that? Yes, I mean, I'm, um, I always say I'm the worst person to put into an operational role in a business. I'm, I'm a typical entrepreneur. I'm constantly looking for new ideas, better ways, how to develop, how to improve a business. So, you know, I would have brought in a centralized procurement department of the business um, and ran that myself for a number of years. Um, so that was to really centralize both from a cost and a quality perspective. Um, I set up our first HR department. And again, that was, you know, we're a people business. So we we went from being, when I started in business, about 250 employees. And when I left it 15 years later, we had nearly 700. Um, So, you know, I I knew for us to grow, people were very central to that. Um, So THR, I opened two of the businesses. um, uh, And I would have, I would have been very focused on how do we look outside our industry, outside Northern Ireland, you know, at best practice in other places, you know, whether it was London, New York, whether it was a completely different industry, I would have taken the teams away. Um, I was always looking at the future and what's next and how do we future-proof the business. Um, And then, which I'm sure we'll get into then, years later that led on to, you know, one of the projects I did was disrupting the healthcare industry. Um, Mm. So that was, you know, part of that. The hotel, for example, you know, we we changed it and double the size and completely transformed it into like an upmarket four-star hotel. So I would have been very heavily involved in doing that as well. Mm. Uh, we'll get onto the disruption in a little bit, but I want to learn know more about where did you learn all this from? Oh God, I don't know. Um, oh, well, what inspired you to want this? What do you what do you think led to that point? I think I mean people say to me, "Are you know leaders born or made?" I, my response is, well, it depends what type of leader you want. Um, but let's go to the entrepreneur piece. I think there's, you know, I there's a certain type of entrepreneur, and, and probably my father's one of them too, that there's just that constant drive for better and more and improvement. So I've always had that. I've always had that in my DNA, and that's just part of and that's in my own personal life as well. So that's probably where that came from. Um, the innovation piece, as part of that, I mean, I've always as a child, being very, very creative. Um, so I always look at things slightly differently and think, okay, if the rest of the world, if all my friends over there are doing that, well, I want to do something different. So I brought that into the business. So that's probably the the core of who I am. Mm. How did I learn? Um, I just looked around the world and thought, well, who's the best people doing the things that I want to do or similar to what I want to do? You know, So if it was a process, you know, something around procurement, well, our industry isn't doesn't need to be the best at buying because it's not a huge pressure on our industry. We need to be very good at the people side. So I said, well, who is the best at this? Well, of course, manufacturing or an industry where it's absolutely critical to them. So then I got a mentor who had worked very heavily in manufacturing to teach me. Um, so I'm always looking at, you know, I heard of a book today from Dan Sullivan. It's, it's the who, not the how. Mm. Um, and it kind of reminded me, I probably always mm. went, I'm very much a people person and I believe people change things and do things so that was always my first instinct is go and find the people who can help me I probably didn't even really know at times what help I needed um Mm. so that's probably the first step and then the more you learn and find out then the more you can start to implement um as well and getting good ideas from the team so amazing so can you tell us more about the disruption and that you brought to the healthcare space yeah, so I, I was very lucky to get a scholarship to go and do my MBA in London. So I went back to London in 2016. Um, my team always panicked when I had a week off from the business, what ideas I was going to come up with. So this was the whole, well, nearly a year. Um, and during that time, I just I just had this feeling that healthcare for elderly people could and should be better. Um, and I suppose it was based on two things. One, if I, if I look at the two problems in that industry, sorry, people's perception of the industry. One is people believe they're horrible places that you go to die and they're dark and dingy and and smell. And they're not all like that. Very many of them aren't like that, but that's people's perception. And the other challenge is that very often it's difficult for parents to bring their children to see their grandparents because it's not an environment that's conducive for grandchildren. 
So for me, there's a huge issue there around generations missing out on what is a very critical thing in life. And on a personal level, it, you know, I realized after I'd done it, it was very much fueled that I had a very, very strong relationship with one of my grandmothers until I was into my 30s. Um, and she was full of life. And, and thankfully, her health was very good. She didn't have to go into a care home, but yeah. but she just lived the most amazing life until she was 96. And I remember thinking, everybody should have that, no matter whether they live at home, whether they're in a care home, whether they're fully well, or whether they're a, a bit sick. So in those two ethos, I, I, so I came home and I said to the team, I want to create an environment where people want to live in more than they want to stay at home on their own. Because there's a huge issue of elderly people who are lonely at home. And I said, and I want to create a place where grandchildren on a Sunday are like literally knocking their mum and dad's door to go and see granny in this place because it's so amazing. And of course, everyone said, as generally I probably was, like, you're absolutely mental and like this will never happen. Um, and many days I definitely thought I was mental. Um, and, and we just went on that road and I just applied the same principle again around doing research I looked at places all over the world I looked at different industries I you know I spent six to nine months doing research alongside my job took the teams away to places all over the UK we looked at places in Europe we looked at dementia places and we we ended up creating the what is now termed the first lifestyle care home in Ireland um so the, the whole ethos of that was social well-being and mental well-being was even more important actually than medical well-being um so the, the the care that we provided as a group is exceptional that was going to continue but what we were going to add on to that was a much higher level that anyone had ever seen in northern ireland or certainly ireland you know so of, of mental and social well-being so to give you an example like in the building we had a cafe a cinema a pub a spa a hair salon and a nail bar but it wasn't, you wow. know, people thought it was just the building. The building was one important element of it. Yeah, it was a community. It was very much for the community, but it was the whole ethos of the staff and the way they did things and the whole industry had to change. So, you know, we had to build a culture of lifestyle and engagement and fulfillment for everyone in the home and um, not just have a nice, pretty building that... Um, so, like, some of the staff, for example, came up with ideas, like, on a Sunday, we would have grandparents' cinema day, so the grandparents and grandchildren went to the cinema together and parents weren't allowed to go. So like that was their special um, time together. And, you know, we had funny stories around. We had a lot of older movies in the in the care home for older people. And within a few months, you know, a lady of 96 came to us and said, oh, you need to get Harry Potter in. And we were all thinking, like, they are not going to like Harry Potter. And, and we said, why Harry Potter? Like, we didn't think that would be the kind of movie you'd want to see. And she said, no, I don't want to see it. But my grandchildren love it. So if I'm going to be able to talk to them properly, I need to watch this. Um, you know, so there's, I mean, there's hundreds of stories of things the staff did. So many examples of families and patients whose lives were completely transformed. Dementia patients, medication dropped. Um, so it was, yeah, a, a phenomenal project and a phenomenal team who, who worked on it with me. I'm sure you look back at that season very proud of yourself for that impact that you made. Yes, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm probably more proud because it was the team who delivered it. I mean, I came up with the idea and certainly, you know, brought it all together with them. But, you know, when I watched care assistants, young care assistants who, you know, we brought in some new caring staff who were not carers before. Um, so we had one young care assistant who used to be a painter and decorator. So there's a guy and I mean, watching him watching him interact with family seeing the feedback seeing how his life changed seeing how the residents life and their family's life you know one family said to me like you know we've now realized mum was at home and completely lonely and totally depressed mum is now like at the cinema every sunday she's going to the pub every friday night and she makes the cocktails for everybody you know she's doing french classes she's you know and they've said to us like this is not end of life care this is a new life for these people. And oh, um, so that was, yeah, I mean, that for me is, yeah, I'll never forget that feeling. That's incredible. Um, you mentioned on a previous call we had that there's a structure to creativity. Mm. Can you explain more about that? Yes, I mean, again, and I'm one of those people, when you say the word structure or process to entrepreneurs, they run a million miles away. Um 
and it's not a structure in that it tightens a, a noose around people, but but there is a process that I use with the team. And and I suppose the simplest analogy I give is one of the most creative things to do in the in anything is to paint a picture. But the structure of painting that picture is within the four lines on the white page. If you didn't have the white page, you can't, you know, it's just an oblivious, you can't create anything. Mm. Um, so there's very much a, a method and steps I go through with my clients now and, and that I did with the team and, and learnt. Because, um, you you know, you're, the hard part is, um, and it was a quote I read, it's not mine, the, the difficult part is not coming up with the idea. The difficult part is making people believe it. Mm. Not only believe that your idea will work, but more importantly, belief in themselves that they can deliver it. Oh, my goodness. You know, so trying to change people's perception, what can be achieved, trying to help them visualize the new way of doing things is step number one. Key step. And the other big step is, okay, now we can visualize it. Oh, God, we're not going to be able to achieve that. So how do you then shift their thinking on that as well? as well as the actual mechanics on the ground of how you do something very different. You know, a lot of work had to go into how we design the building, how we, so there's a process around just the very operational and, and staffing structure and, and things that have to be thought about as well. Mm-hmm. And obviously finances. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before um, culture, mm-hmm. um, culture side of the business. Can you speak more about that? Yes. I mean, I was chatting to someone yesterday and, um, was talking about my parents' business and, you know, my parents, when I started in the business, had no HR department. And in a UK business with over 200 employees, it's in healthcare and hospitality. You know, people have said to me that is unheard of. Um, So my parents, without realising the word culture, they always instilled a very strong culture in the business, you know, very much get good people, look after them, Mm. pay them well, and they'll look after our residents and our customers in the hotel well. Um, so I was brought up and, and very much do the right thing. And um, so I was brought up in that environment. So when I then came into the business, all I had to do was again structure. And I, and I don't like structure, ironically, but bring a bit more formality and structure to that. So capture, you know, as we got bigger, how do we capture the core of that culture that my parents wanted? Because, of course, you know, it's very difficult starting a business and growing it. But one of the things that is easy is your people are close to you. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to formalize a culture or anything because they just see it and breathe it because you're with them all the time. As you start to expand that out, it dilutes. And when people don't properly think about how you protect that, and for me, it's if not the most important thing, but it's certainly in the top three most important things in a business. If you don't protect that as you grow, you are in big trouble. Mm. And he, you spoke a bit um, in a prior conversation we had about how you kind of the link between culture and this very creativity, creating an environment that allows for diverse thinking. Mm. Yeah. Again, you know, a lot of businesses, it's a big challenge to get ideas from people and, and to help people understand why that is. So I think I've said this to you before, Nikki. So we all start out, you know, if you ask someone, who's the most creative people in the world to come up with good ideas? And everyone says children. And I say, well, yeah, we were all children. So what happens is everyone's creative when they're younger. You go to school, you're filtered into a system. You're probably told you're good at a few things. So early on in your life, you've decided I'm good at maths, I'm not good at English Mm. because of what a teacher or a parent has said to you. You're now in a structure where there's a right or wrong answer. And when you get the right answer, you get praised for it. And when you get the wrong answer, it's the opposite. So you're being conditioned that be worried if you get the wrong answer. Now that translates the whole way through school. It translates into university and then consequently it translates into the workplace. Mm-hmm. And what then happens is we're conditioned like that. We go into the workplace and we all believe that the people who are sitting at the top know all the answers. That's why they're there. We don't give any ideas because God forbid we would be wrong. And actually they're more like the teacher or the principal. So they'll tell us what to do exactly. and we'll just do it. The scripts and- yeah, yeah. I have always believed the polar opposite, actually. Um, and again, this is the work. And I've, I've said to you as well, when we talked before, any leaders in their 30s and 40s that lead like that are not going to be successful in business. And COVID has proved that. that. So if you don't... COVID? Uh-huh. Because everything turned on its head. So there's a, you know, 
And this is really unfortunate because there's a lot of leaders who are absolute experts in their field and what they have done. They are not going to be the people who are going to succeed. The people who are going to succeed are those who flip that on its head and think, yep, I have a lot of expertise in that. But my job now more than ever is to become an expert in asking the right questions and getting the best ideas out of my team and not only getting the best ideas out of them, but getting them all to funnel in the right direction and getting them to buy into making that happen. Now, that's one sentence that sounds very, very simple. It is very complex. It takes a lot of work, training, mentoring. I mean, I've had a lot of people who've helped me, um, and that's a constant development. You know, if you learn how to be an accountant, I'm not saying it doesn't change, but that's a real good skill that you have. Mm-hmm. It doesn't change as much as managing people does because people are changing all the time. So I wish I could say there's an easy answer, but that one is a constant development for leaders. So how do you build that into your culture? So what I have done is you have to swing the needle so far the other way to get people even to give ideas. So when you start out from nothing, you have to make it slow so you can't just go in, you know, people say to me, well, I've had a full day of like idea generation and the team arrived and no one came up with anything. So there's no point doing that. That's, yeah, yeah. that's a waste of time. We're not doing that again. And I said, well, they're not going to sit in front of a hundred people given an idea when they're conditioned like this. So you need to start slowly and you need to start at their level. So if you've oh, someone okay. in a job, ask them something about their specific job. Look in this job, like if you own this business, like what would be the one thing you'd love to change tomorrow? And then you move them along a sliding scale. When they give an idea, never, ever straight away say no. Praise them for giving an idea. When it's not the right idea, say, okay, well, have you thought of this? You you know, your whole communication around how they give ideas. And when anyone gives an idea that that works and the business uses, make sure the whole business know that that's the person who's given it. Because when praise is given now, recognition is given for, be brave, put your neck on the line, give an idea forward. And that, you know, people would have said to me, God, Carl, like you must have loads of emails all the time of your team coming with problems and challenges and things to solve. I said, genuinely, I could count in one hand over the years, the amount of time that has happened. And that has happened whenever it I am the only one who can solve it because it's at a very high level. So either the problem on the other side wants to see the person at the top because they just want to see the person at the top or it's too complex. But, but genuinely, because I... I'm not every day, you know, people think this culture is a one-off thing. It's every single opportunity I get to develop staff, to have the confidence and the ability to think for themselves. I, I, you know, I don't really need them to teach them what to think. That's in their induction and their training and development early on. They need to learn the job. The job of senior leaders is to teach their team how to think and how to think differently and how to think of ideas and how always to be improving the business. Um, you know, leaders being innovative is not enough anymore. You need everybody in that constant improvement all of the time. Completely, completely agree. The point on we have to essentially disrupt cultures of mm-hmm. leading in companies such that it's not top-down approach, but really mm-hmm. as leaders, we're just guides, we're just facilitators. Yes. To bring out the best in our people so they contribute and they learn as well. And mm-hmm. I think you said something about not judging their ideas because we can't judge because we don't know. <laughs> the presumption that as a leader, you've got superior knowledge or insight or wisdom into a market and industry, um, I think it's, it's quite flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we may have greater level of experience in a given industry, but no one really knows where the future is heading towards. And I think just allowing for room such that everyone has a voice, um, to what extent that voice matters is now a different thing, right? You don't necessarily want to ensure that you're creating this ultra democratic business where every single person must vote on a certain matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think just allowing for various different stakeholders to represent their views and represent their ideas is super important because mm-hmm. they're seeing things that you're not seeing. They may have more interface with a customer in a way that you are not, or they are seeing the internal workings of the business in a way that from an angle that you're not. And so it's really important to manage stakeholders effectively. Hugely, yeah. Yeah. And um, I want to talk a little bit about 
how your exit from the family business into your new foray into you know advising and consulting next gens yes so i um as i set that project up um and opened it in 2018 and and filled it that year and it was a great success with the team and and at the end of that i i just made a decision well it wasn't an overnight decision looking back it was probably a number of years building up to it but I just had this drive that I could help next gens who you know who wanted to do what I did, which was the disruption piece, and and either in their own business or very much start their own business either within the family business or outside of it. Um, so I I left the family business now. In the first few years, I was just doing consulting, um, and then obviously when you and I met um, earlier this year, it was an idea that you had given me, and it all just seemed to align. Um, and I just felt that there was a, a purpose for me on a, I wouldn't say bigger scale because the family business is very successful, but on a a different scale. Um, and, you know, the experience I had very much at a very young age from the business experience um, and then the whole psychology and coaching piece that I have as well, mm-hmm. um, I just felt could really, really help um, next-gen entrepreneurs who wanted to grow their own business and do something different from just being in the family business. Mm-hmm. Totally, you've got the perfect like experience and resume, like lived experience, not just theoretical experience. Wanted to ask more about your um, next gen entrepreneurs. What specific challenges do you help them through? Yeah, so suppose it's you know there's three key areas. If you think of a next gen person, there's the business, you know how to grow the business. So just looking at the business fundamentals, there's the family dynamics. And even if you're not still in the family business, it still plays a big part. And then there's some sales. So there's some sales in terms of their own leadership style, their own purpose, their own gremlins, their own psychology that's holding them back, which is also impacted good and bad by the family dynamics. Um, so we work on the three things together um, because they all interlink. You know, and if you look at the you know the business growth pace, innovation is a huge part of that. Um, how they lead their team is a huge part of that. And and then all the fundamentals to scale a business in terms of sales and marketing, the processes, the strategy, um, if they were growing a business with anyone else. But but I think the piece where the work I do with them is very different than just having a consultant from a big four is the other two elements of it. Um, people don't realize the impact that has as well. And actually, probably I didn't either when I was young. So when you bring those three circles together, it's it makes a huge impact um, in terms of their success. And and more than anything, really, you know, different next gens have said to me, like, what I really want, Cara, is I want to create my own path or I want to forge my own path and have my own mark in the world. Um, so that's where, you know, you can bring those together and, and very much help them grow their own business. Totally. And I wanted to ask you, I don't know, from your personal experience and your experience, Working with next gens, which of those three spheres do you start with, self, family, or business? Self. It has to start with self. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Totally resonates. Um, understanding self, understanding mm-hmm. values, understanding strengths, weaknesses, motives, um, the hidden gremlins, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Working through those to have mm-hmm. clarity to then impact on the business and the family yeah. totally. I mean, what, what I generally find is they've worked on all three to different levels, you know, so we, you know, we go through questions on all three areas and then we can identify, you know, where they're not connecting um, or where the gaps are. So on the business side, for example, um, there might just be, you know, one of the big advantages of working in a family business is you get a lot of experience um, now, some of them have very broad experience, but depending on what they want to do next, there might be very specific experience that their family business didn't give them that they need to learn. Mm-hmm. So we identify that and either I work with them if I can or I bring in experts um, in that field if it's not my area of expertise. Um, or, you know, there's areas that they've worked on, but actually they just need more work on. So they might have a strategy for a business, you know, don't really like the word strategy, but a plan of where they're going or how they're going to grow it, but it just needs more work. Um, so we look very much at that side of it as well. Um, but 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 it does come back to them as well, mm. um, and what they want to achieve, and um, and why you know why are they starting this business, this specific mm. business? Um, you know, and you have to be careful. And there's there's two motivators for anyone in life. 
there's running away from and there's running towards. And, you know, are they doing something to inverted commas run away from the family business? And, you know, I've, I've seen occasions where hmm. any, any other business will do, you know, they just yeah. want something different. They want to get out of the family business. They want to make their own mark. And actually when you go back to them and their psychology, the actual business model doesn't stack up. So, you know, you're challenging them very much as an investor would, for example, I would do that rule. Okay, take the emotion out of this and just challenge them. And then they can see themselves. Well, actually, yes, I want to start a business. And yes, I'm going to grow a business. But actually, this one is not the one that's going to grow. Um, so they go, you know, we go back to the drawing board in terms of, well, what is the business for them um, in terms of how they're going to scale it? It's super important what you said, the distinction between running from running to oftentimes I've find that next gen deal with huge imposter syndrome like mm. the sphere and the influence of the success of their parents or their grandparents has led to this eclipse where they feel they don't compare and mm. as they're weighing up should i leave should i stay or even when they started their new journeys there's just this huge you know shadow on them mm -hmm. like where they feel they can't you know actually stack up and um it's really, really difficult to help them um, overcome that, to see themselves as autonomous, see themselves as having agency to make their mark. But like you said, these ideas of the way you want to make your mark, are they reasonable or are mm. they a pie in the sky? Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not, I certainly wouldn't want anyone to feel like that, but, but people do. And, and I love those kind of people. I mean, some of the people that I've met and, and worked with, are people that have been in their family business and then they've gone off to do, they want to do something different. So not only have they got the imposter syndrome of the family piece that you've talked about, they've got the imposter syndrome of going into a new industry that they know nothing about. Now, I have to be careful with them that they don't go in a, into an industry that's completely alien to them and don't go too far down the track. But actually, you know, my belief and, and a lot of people I met, business is business. You know, so if you've got yeah. the fundamentals and you've got a real interest in it. So I met one lady recently who family were in trucking business and actually she's now gone off with her husband and they have opened or they've bought over private clinics. Um, she's in America so that, you know, I they're the kind of people I love working with because actually new people in the industry bring a different perspective anyway. Completely and fresh pair of eyes, right? Yeah. So then I can show them a process of how they you know are able to continue to innovate i can help them on the business side i can help them on their own psychology that they don't feel like an imposter in that industry and that all of that together then they can ultimately grow the business and mm. um, so you know people who are sitting in a family business or they've left a family business and they're doing something else mm. um sometimes it's not you know it could be software related to the family business or it could be a slight different angle offshoot of the business or something sometimes it's completely completely different um but but that's an important part of what we do together as well amazing and can you share more about how what does working with you look like is that one-on-one -on -one? is it groups and how can so people the, learn more about working with you yes with the minute i'm doing one-on-one -on -one work but i'm putting together you know i've talked with four um I don't like the word mastermind and I need it. Well, the name I have is Next Gen Family Circle. Um, so I'm going to put 10 of these Next Gen entrepreneurs together who are growing their own business. Because um, even that, you know, one of the things that was critical to my success in terms of that care home was surrounding myself with people who thought very differently on one front and surrounding myself with people who, you know, 99% of the world didn't believe it was going to happen because they couldn't imagine it. I had 1% of people in my corner who were very entrepreneurial and kept saying like, this is amazing, just keep going. So they were the two key things for me personally, as obviously as well as my team, but outside of my team, they were the two key reasons that project was a success for me. So I want to create that environment for those people as well, that they've got the people around them, other next-gen entrepreneurs who, you know, when they come up with crazy ideas, they don't think it's crazy because they've got other crazies in the room thinking the same and, and backing them um so that's i'm gonna i'm gonna do that this year that group amazing um, amazing i'm excited for you i'm really mm -hmm. excited 
Well, this has been phenomenal, Cara. Like, this has been so rich and I've learned so much from you. Your personal journey has been so inspiring. If anyone wants to learn more about you, how can they best reach you? Yeah, the best way is just my LinkedIn profile. So it's Cara Macklin. And that's where you'll see most of my articles and whatnot. I have a website, caram.org.uk. It's been updated at the minute. Um, hopefully when this goes out, it's it's been updated. Um, but LinkedIn would be the, the best place to find me and just send me a message. And and if there's someone, you know, I've said to you before, if there's anyone just wants to have a chat with me, I mean, I don't do a sales pitch and I don't work with anyone that I don't think I would be the best person to help because, you know, like you, I grew up in a family business and, and it's hard work and it's hard to earn money. And it's, you know, so I'm not a consultant that's having to hit targets or, you know, work so many hours to make a certain amount of money. I, I want to help the right kind of people um, that are going to benefit from my experience. Oh, that's just, and that's what the industry needs. I mean, I'm often just, you know, contacted by an ex-gen that will reach out and just, you know, there's conflict or there's something mm-hmm. they just need to urgently workshop and just having a conversation with someone that is just there to hold space mm-hmm. so they can vent is 80% of the problem like, oh, huge. solved. And then yes. the 20% is, okay, how do I actually solve the problem? So yeah, there's there's something to be said about folks that have walked into this line of family business and come at it with true empathy and a mm-hmm. heart of service. And you're definitely one of those. So I'd no, encourage anyone you. that, you know, um, wants to learn more about creativity, disruption, you know, in, you were an intrapreneur, that's the way I see it, in your family enterprise. You drew so much change from within. Um, and yeah, I definitely encourage you to reach out to Cara. Thank you so much. Awesome. Oh my goodness, I loved that conversation. We could keep going. <laughs> we really could keep going like I said on the on the podcast recording I feel like Kara's life can be summed up into culture and innovation input is culture so working on company culture to bring about this output of innovation and really what stuck with me with that she said was being creative has a structure and I think that's quite counter-cultural because a lot of us think being creative is about you know thinking outside of the box which it is but it feels very intuitive it feels very erratic it feels very arbitrary but actually there can be a structure to bring about creativity innovation and um and yeah and disruption right and it reminds me of Dr. Timothy Clark, who's the author of The Four Stages of Psychological Safety, and um, the book really explores how to define the path to inclusion and innovation. So the author hypothesizes that inclusion and innovation have a relationship in the sense that we if we have a team of people, which we do in businesses, right, it's all about teamwork, and we have a diverse group of people, whether it's by demographic or by psychographic or perspectives, life experiences, we will not maximize the impact of in of potential innovation if we're not taking them through four key stages so that they feel safe to contribute and to challenge the status quo. The first stage is inclusion safety. Inclusion safety refers to the need to belong, right? So as is commonly said, diversity is just simply having a seat at the table, but inclusion is having a voice. And so when there's inclusion safety, members actually feel included, (laughs) Go, go figure. And they then have the courage to be themselves and showcase their unique attributes. Then the second stage is learner safety. And here, that's where team members have the need to learn and to develop. So inclusion, they, you know, they they feel comfortable in standing alone and being themselves. But where there's learner safety, they move a step forward and they're able to feel like I can ask questions. I can give and receive feedback. I can take risks and I can fail so I can learn from other people. Then the third is contributor safety. 
So contributor safety is where they satisfy that inner need to make a difference. So learning is one directional. So that's where the member is, the team members just receiving insights, perspectives and knowledge. But contributor safety is bi-directional. So members are also contributing their insights, their perspectives and their knowledge. And here they really enjoy autonomy and independence, confidence and fulfillment as a result of satisfying that need. And the last stage is challenger safety. And I think this is what um, Kara was kind of alluding to. And it's it satisfied the need to make things better, right? So under challenger safety, we move from just merely contributing our ideas, but now we challenge the status quo. So when we have this challenger safety, folks feel safe to speak up and to challenge the status quo without feeling like they'll be punished, they'll be ostracized, or that their reputations are on the line. And it really allows for, we can disagree, right? Um, It allows for this environment where we say we have unity, but we don't necessarily have uniformity, right? Um, And I strongly believe that teams, families, communities, that where if they desire that greatest diversity of thoughts, we need to have all these four tenets of psychological safety to accelerate learning, increase contribution and performance and also stimulate innovation. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd on this whole topic and um, I go deep on this in my book, which I literally just finished my draft, (laughs) the final draft. And it's going back to the publishers and the editors to do their final code through the book and we can start looking at the launch. Um, and I go deep on how do we apply these four stages of psychological safety in a family enterprise setting? What should we be thinking of? How can we maximize them, etc., etc. So I'm so grateful for Kara coming on. I learned so much, have pages of notes, and really inspired by her journey. And I'm so sure she'll continue to disrupt and be this powerhouse woman that will bring continued impact to the folks that she's serving. So thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care and God bless.